open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. Coming back to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 1, a little bit longer than I expected to be. Um, but we are making our way through. This morning we find ourselves in this next section, verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. And as we come into this section, we remember that we're, we're dealing with this part of Peter's epistle now, which is a common format within all of the epistles, both of Peter and Paul and others, of exhortations built on the truth of salvation. In other words, there's the indicative, there's the reality, the truths of who God is, what he has done for us in Christ, and then there's imperatives or the commands built on those truths that is then how we are to live in light of those realities. And so that is the section that Peter begins here in verse 13 and through the remainder of the epistle. And this morning when we come to verses 17 through 21, we come to a concept that has been really all but lost in much of our contemporary Christianity, namely the fear of God. The fear of God. In much of contemporary Western Christianity anyway, certainly American Christianity, there is a loss of the sense of the fear of God. That God is one who saves and God is one who rules and God is one who should be feared. Should be feared. There is, of course, an understanding of the emphasis upon grace as Christians and as New Testament lays before us the wonders of our salvation in Christ, as Peter himself has done that in the first 12 verses. There is yet corresponding to that reality of grace the truth that God is one to be feared. He is holy. He is holy. And yet, if we would see a view of God reflected in much of our contemporary Christian music, films, preaching, God is more commonly presented to us as really like a divine helper, a close and an intimate friend, an omnipotent daddy who we cuddle up into his ever-loving arms as children. God's presented as if almost he's more honored by our casualness and our sentimentality than he is by expressions of reverent fear and devotion in light of his holiness and trembling in his presence. Indeed, I would say, and I think you'd probably agree with me, a casualness is really what defines a lot of the church now. This sort of easygoing, casual, flip-flop approach to God's presence. But that's a very different picture than what Scripture presents to us. In fact, with this new sort of presentation of God... This, this, this idea of God being only for us, only for us in a sense that never really takes seriously our sin and his transcendent glory. He's, he's instead presented as one whom we should never fear, but only warm up to as non-condemning, non-judgmental, non-confrontational, a very approachable kind of deity. And the problem with some of that, as we're, again, well aware, is that there are elements of truths to that. The love of God is one of the most amazing realities in the universe. The tenderness of God, the gentleness of Christ, the humility of Christ. The fact that we now have ready access into the presence of the holy God of the universe and of creation is, in fact, of the most glorious truths of reality. And yet... 
Those aren't the only truths about God. As we saw just even last week, God is a holy God. And even in his redemption of his people Israel, he demanded that he is one who would be treated with holiness. Marking that command with the very death of Aaron's sons at the dedication of the tabernacle. So God is a God of grace, and yet God is a God to be feared. He's a God to be feared. And so in contrast to much of contemporary Christianity, Peter teaches us here that the fear of God is an essential mark of faith in him as, in him as Father and in Christ as Redeemer. The fear of God is an essential mark of faith in God as Father and Christ as Redeemer. Now this morning, we're only going to look at the first part of this in verse 17. Uh, next week, we'll look at verses 18 through 21. But I want us to consider this morning that the fear of God is essential to faith and holiness. The fear of God is essential to faith and holiness. So let's look at this together in the time we have as we prepare our hearts for the table. But first, read with me out of 1 Peter, and we'll read the entire section. So beginning in verse 17, uh, down to verse 21. 1 Peter 1, 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I look back at verse 17, and let's just notice this morning, fear in the fatherhood of God. Fear in the fatherhood of God. Again, in verse 17, he says, If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on earth. Now, Peter is here continuing his exhortations that begin back in verse 13. And he's calling on believers in, in all of this to live consistent with the reality of our salvation and who God is. And in each of these commands, if we will observe, Peter is building on the reality of the internal change that comes to those who have experienced the regenerating grace of God. If you remember back in verse 3, he began the whole section with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So he's, he's speaking of then the reality of genuine salvation, of a genuine heart change, a spiritual change of being moved from death to life. And it is that change, it is on that change that he bases all of these commands. But notice here then that there is this this inner reality out of which, which takes the priority, and it's out of that inner reality that our lives then are to demonstrate salvation. You note the inner terms, the, the, the inner life kind of terms that he uses here. This isn't merely external conformity, but he's saying live consistent with who you are. So he says in the first command of verse 13, fix your hope. 
Fix your hope. This is a command to take hold of our thoughts and set the mind on the grace of our salvation and the appearing of Christ in whom we hope, love, and long for. Those are internal realities. To hope in Christ is, a, is something that we know in our hearts and in our minds and in our affections. Be holy yourselves as the Holy One who called you. It's a command which speaks not only of moral purity, as we looked at, not only of sort of some outward conformity, but it is a whole person conformity to the person of God. It involves our affections, and it involves most centrally what we love. Holiness finds as its heart, as its most essential element, what we love. What we love. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is at the very foundation of holiness. And then he says here in verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear. Conduct yourselves in fear. Again, this is an internal reality. To conduct ourselves is, yes, how we order our lives, but the motivation behind it is in fear. It's a command grounded in an an internal apprehension of God's holy nature as Father as the one who has the authority to judge sin and yet acts towards us with such goodness and kindness, loving kindness, really, to use an Old Testament word. So then Peter then lays out before us here something, again, that is a a foreign truth to much of Christianity, maybe to our own lives for some of us, but it's this, that the fear of God is an essential element of spiritual life and spiritual reality. The fear of God is an essential element to spiritual life and spiritual reality. Where there is no fear of God, there is no spiritual reality. Where there is no fear of God, there is no growth in grace. But where there is the fear of God, there is a right apprehension of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. If we were to look in the Old Testament, in fact, Proverbs says, you cannot even begin to be wise until you fear God. You're familiar with these words, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't even have spiritual knowledge and you certainly can't have spiritual wisdom unless you have the fear of God. So the fear of the Lord then is the difference between being a spiritual fool or being a spiritually wise person. If you do not fear God, you are within the spiritual realm, most of all to be pitied and will live a vain and pointless life. If you do fear God, then you are in the right frame of heart and mind to know true wisdom, even to know God himself. So it's at the very essence of spiritual reality. What does it mean then to fear the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, to fear the Lord has the actual idea of fear, to be afraid of judgment, the term does, to be afraid of negative consequences of danger or harm. And it also has the idea of reverence toward God and a sort of awed response to his transcendent glory and to his goodness. So the fear of the Lord has an element of dread in light of his holiness, and at the same time, it has an element of trust. And reverence in light of his goodness, in light of his grace. And and the idea of dread isn't totally foreign, as we know, to what it means to be even one who is identified as a true child of God. We merely need to look at some Old Testament examples. Probably the most shining of that would be Isaiah himself, a prophet of God. 
a righteous man, one of the most righteous in Israel. He comes into the presence of God, in the presence of God's holiness, and I would submit to you that he felt a sense of dread, a sense of dread of being there, at this, this sight of the glory of God and the angels surrounding him. And he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, condemn me, I'm judged, I have no hope. And of course, God then extended to him grace, taking a coal from the fire and, and cleansed him, looking to him, at the, looking at the, symbolizing their atonement for his sin. And so we have examples like that, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, there is even this idea of dread. If you'll remember Peter, when he was in the boat in Luke 5, 8 with Christ, and Christ did a miracle with fish, and Peter fell down in the boat, and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. There was a sense of a dread, an acute awareness of his own unholiness in the presence of God, in the presence of God. So, but although it includes the idea of dreaded fear of judgment, it is primarily, particularly within the life of God's true children, the response of reverent trust, delight, and obedience in accordance with who God is, within the majesty of his own being and within his goodness as our Redeemer and King. If you want a brief definition, I would say this. It is an inner attitude of the heart before God that is marked by reverence and a holy and proper fear of sin. Let me repeat that. It is an inner attitude of the heart before God that is marked by reverence and a holy and proper fear of sin. A fear of sinning against this great and this glorious God. Now, because of the significance of this idea of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, I want to take some time to just briefly consider this and survey how central this was to the spiritual reality of God's people throughout Scripture. But let me focus primarily on the Old Testament saint, because that's where Peter is grounding this admonition. And then we'll bring it over into for us. So note first here then that Peter is, is making this statement that we are to conduct ourselves in fear during our time of stay here on earth, grounded in a well-established Old Testament reality. In the, to, the, to the saint of old, the fear of God was essential to knowing and walking with God. And in fact, one to the knowledge of God or one who knew God, that person would be described as one who feared God. Uh, Elijah, the great prophet in 1 Kings 18, 12, described the whole of his life as a servant of God in these terms. I have feared the Lord from my youth. That is to say, he was marked by a godly obedience and trust from his youngest days. He was consistent with the old covenant commands and he was consistent in his desire to please God as he had revealed himself. Now, now, just before looking at it, however, on how that works out in the life of godliness, it's helpful to put it into a contrast. It's helpful to put it into a contrast. And so let me just note here on that, this first point, is that conversely, while the fear of the Lord is what identifies the truly godly person in the Old Testament, the very heart of spiritual depravity is to not fear God. So the heart of godliness was to fear God and the heart of depravity or sin or the fall or of darkness or rebellion against God was to not fear him, was to not fear him. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
There is no God. There is no God to fear. There is no God to serve. There is no God to obey. There is no God to tremble before. There simply is no God to fear. And as a matter of fact, at the very end of Paul's indictment in Romans chapter 3, when he's showing that both Jew and Gentile are both under sin and in need then of a Redeemer, he says this in Romans chapter 3, verses 18. And again, he's quoting here from the Old Testament. But he says, after he gives this whole list of condemnations, why God is just in showing that all the world is answerable to him. He sums it all up. Really, it's in verse 18. It really acts as a summary statement of everything else that he's just said. But he says this. He says in Romans 3, 18, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What does it mean to live in unbelief? It means to live in a spiritual reality in which there is no fear of God. There is no inner constraint based on his holiness and his goodness to hate sin, to trust him, and to obey him. Therefore, where there is no fear of God, as we would expect, there is every manner of lawlessness. Every manner of lawlessness. And again, this is... Uh, throughout the Old Testament, I'm just going to mention a few verses. I won't, I won't mention every verse on each one of these topics. But let me just give you an example of this. In Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, in, or excuse me, in 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings, God is speaking to a wayward people, a disobedient people. And as he does in other places too, he summarizes their waywardness, their idolatry, with the fact that they do not fear God. So he says in 2 Kings chapter 7, now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned. This is uh, speaking here now to the northern tribes uh, after the split. So he had judged them by the kingdom of Assyria. He had destroyed, or the, the kingdom of Assyria, he had destroyed their capital, Samaria. And he gives this as the reason why. He says, now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and so forth. And rather than fearing the God who brought them up, he says, they feared other gods. They feared other gods. But they did not fear the Lord their God. He says in verse 14, The evidence of this is that they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to be like. And then he sums it up down in verse 24. Actually, in verse 25, he says, At the beginning of their living there, that is in the land of Samaria, these are the northern tribes again, at the beginning of their living there, they did not fear God. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them and killed some of them and so on and so forth. The point here is this, that while the godly was marked with a fear of God, the ungodly are marked by a lack of fear of God. And where there is a lack of the fear of God, there is all manner of lawlessness and wickedness and sin and disobedience to God. Where there is a lack of fear of God, there is the secret indulgence of sin. There is the secret indulgence of sin. 
Again, many places we could look at this. Let me mention to you out of Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 14, he says this, speaking of the fool, the one who does not fear God, he says, with perversity in his heart, he continually devises evil, he spreads strife. There is this inward perversity and lack of fear of God that then spreads evil. He says in verse 25, speaking here, he says, speaking there of moral purity, Speaking of the adulteress, he says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Can a man take fire in his bosoms and his bosom and his clothes not be burned? That happens when there's a lack of the fear of God and there's that inward indulgence of sin. It's the kind of thing that he addressed to the Pharisees, who would be an example of this. He says, you do not, if you look at a woman to lust for her, it's the same as adultery. In other words, it's not merely the act, but there is that secret indulgent of the lust of sin that God is gazing at. He says the same thing in many places. There is then where there's a fear, lack of the fear of God, the judgment of God. So the godliness is marked by a fear of God, and godlessness is marked by a lack of the fear of God. And that's an Old Testament principle throughout. But the godly are those who recognize the God of the covenant. They recognize that God is the one not only who has redeemed them, who has created them, as he has all men, has redeemed them. He is the God who also holds men accountable. And, and what that does within the godly, however, is not cause this sort of servile fear But it produces righteousness. It is at the very heart of spirituality. Again, let me just give a few examples of this. What does the fear of God produce in the godly? What does the fear of God produce within those who know God truly, within the redeemed? Well, we already noted that it produces wisdom. It also produces integrity. Integrity. Right? When one doesn't fear God and secretly indulges sin, it means that they act differently when they think there will be no consequence for their actions than they do when they think their actions will bring about a consequence. It's that simple. The person who can obey as a means of eye service when it is to their advantage, but as soon as they're out of the sight of anyone's gazing eye, indulge in whatever manner of wickedness comes into their mind and into their heart. But the fear of God, the godly aren't like that. They are the same in front of others and not in front of others because they fear God. They fear God. Listen to Exodus 18, Exodus 18, 21. Just listen as I read it. He says this. When Moses is selecting here those who will help judge Israel... He says this, furthermore, you shall select, this is actually counsel by his father-in-law, but he says, furthermore, you shall select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over as leaders of thousands and hundreds of fifties and of tens. Could you imagine if that was a requirement to serve in our Senate or Congress? We'd have a very different group of men. But here in God's people, it was to be a man of integrity who feared God, who internally loved the truth and hated dishonest gain. So the fear of God produces in you integrity, honesty, spiritual consistency. The fear of God is at the heart then 
as well of obedience. In Genesis chapter 22, you remember that, that great account of I, uh, Abraham receiving a command of God to offer up his son Isaac, to take him and offer him on Mount Moriah. Abraham goes with his son with the wood and the knife and the fire. They ascend to Mount Moriah. Abraham, incredibly, no doubt, distressed, and yet at the same time utterly committed to obedience to God's will, lays his son on the altar, raises his hand with the knife to slay his son in verse 10, and God stops him. And God stops him. But he says this to him after Abraham had passed this test. He says in verse 12, he said to him, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham's obedience was a mark that he feared God. His fear of displeasing God and disobeying God overcame any natural resistance that he had towards killing his own son in this very unique command of God. The fear of God compelled him to obey God even when he didn't understand, even when it seemed to go against everything that he would have expected from this God whom he knew and trusted. And yet he feared him. And he obeyed him. The very heart of his obedience, who is to us even an example of faith, was his fear of God. Let me give just a few more. And I'll hurry up here. In Exodus chapter 14, the fear of God leads to trust in God. Trust in God. Just one more. Well, almost. Verse 21. This is after God delivered them from the land of Egypt. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept back the east wind uh, all day, all day and all night. And that's a wonderful, wonderful verse of the power of God. But actually, 31 is where I wanted to go. And he says this, And when Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had, had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and this... They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Fear and faith were integrally bound there. They saw the great work of God. They saw his power. They saw his faithfulness to his word. They saw him bring destruction on the nation of Egypt, the army of Pharaoh. And their response was to fear God and to trust him. Well, there are many other examples. The fear of the Lord was the confidence of God's people. 27, Psalm 27.1 The fear of the Lord brings spiritual fellowship and intimacy with God. It is those who fear the Lord whom the secret of the covenant is made known. Psalm 25.14 And fear of the Lord is essential to worship. It is essential to worship. The point being here is that every aspect of our spiritual lives and every aspect of the spiritual life of the saint in the Old Covenant was to fear God. It was to fear Him. It wasn't only for the pagans, but it was for the most godly. The most godly had the most fear. And then the most fear had the greatest integrity, the greatest wisdom, the greatest obedience, the greatest faith, the greatest courage, the greatest fellowship, the greatest display of worship and of praise. So the fear of the Lord was at the very heart of what it meant to know God and is at the very heart of what it means to know God. 
As a matter of fact, even the Messiah himself, this anticipated Messiah, would be one who fears God. Listen to this anticipation in Isaiah chapter 11. Let's mention it. This is speaking of the shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and so on. His righteousness, his justice, his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding, his counsel of this one who would come would be marked by an inordinate possession of the spirit of the Lord and would be marked by a complete delight in the fear of God. Notice what he said there. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will delight in that reverent love and obedience to the Lord. Now, some may think then that the fear of God is only an Old Testament concept because that's where there's the mean, wrathful God who's always judging and seems to be angry all the time at people. But in the New Testament, we have a less vengeful God of grace and mercy in Jesus. And, and here... And the fear of God then would be something that's really not a part of the new covenant. It's not really a part of those who know the grace of God in Christ Jesus. However, as you're already aware, that's simply not the case. God is the same God of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. And just as the fear of the Lord was at the root of godliness within the Old Covenant saint, so it is God's command to us, command to you and command to me, that we are to fear God. We are to fear God. It's at, the, it's at the base of our love for him. And just as a side note, as you're well aware, or you might remember, that the Old Testament is full of the grace of God. It's full of the tenderness of God. And the New Testament is full as well, not only of those things, but also with the judgment of God. Christ speaks more of hell than he does of heaven in the gospel. He warned of judgment. In Revelation 18, it is from the wrath of the Lamb that men hide their face. And so these, these things then are just as much true for the new covenant believer as they are for the old covenant believer. And just as in the Old Testament, the fear of God is essential to spiritual life. The fear of God is essential to spiritual life. The early church in Acts 9.31 was marked by the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Lord. Now, do you struggle with that? This is where some struggle. How then, how then can God be loved as a father and feared at the same time? How can God be loved as a father and feared at the same time? How can he tell us of being chosen by God, of this eternal love of the father that redeems us, which we'll look next week in Christ? How can we have that and at the same time fear him and have any sense of dread and any sense of the word? How can we reverence him with this holy awe of his transcendent glory and at the same time him be approachable as a father? How can these two things, how can these two things come together? 
Well, the reason that some struggle with that is because we have, as the people of God and merely as human beings, this persistent tendency to have a very unbiblical and unbalanced view of God. We tend to always emphasize one thing to the exclusion of another, and God is not so divided. He's not so divided. Particularly, there's, it's because we have this tendency to either emphasize wrath to the exclusion of love, grace, and mercy, or emphasize love, grace, and mercy to the diminishing of his wrath and of his holiness and of judgment, of his justice. But these realities are of grace and judgment, holiness and love, are not opposing truths within God. They don't work against each other. They are a singular expression of his holy nature. They're not to be viewed as antithetical to one another. They are, in fact, reflections of his holy perfection. His holy perfection. Now, although we'll say a little bit more about this, but... As he's going to bring out in verse 18, these are, in fact, this idea of God as judge and God as redeemer, God as holy, wrathful upholder of his just law, as well as loving redeemer of those who trust in him, is displayed in the cross, is displayed in redemption. God did not in any way diminish his holiness and his wrath in upholding his justice and his holy nature and his holy character. When he placed Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin and Christ willingly gave himself up as a sacrifice for sin, God unleashed on him not some withheld or restrained execution of his holy justice, but with unmitigated wrath he laid it on his son. He upheld his holy nature, his holy justice, his abhorrence of sin. And yet, in that singular act... He also displayed his grace because it was his beloved son on the cross bearing that wrath and that abhorrence of sin in his own soul and in his own body that we might be forgiven. So grace, if we understand God aright, and if we understand God as he's revealed on the pages of Scripture, grace does not cheapen our view of sin. It, in fact, magnifies it. It shows the inestimable cost and value of redemption. Grace doesn't provide for a life of low-level holiness, but grace is what motivates towards the diligent pursuit of whole person holiness in the fear of God. And that's what Peter is saying here. You are to be holy as I am holy, and if you address this holy one as Father, who impartially judges each man according to his work, conduct yourself in fear during your time of stay on earth. So, fear is for you and for me, fear of God, a right response to knowing God as Father. To knowing God as Father. If you call upon Him as Father, more literally, uh, if you were to just take it in the order of the words, it would be, and if as Father you call upon God. If as Father you call upon God, the emphasis falling upon the identity of God. As Father, the identity of God as Father. Now, this is just a footnote, and I, we're just going to mention it. That even that concept is for us in our contemporary culture kind of hard to wrap our minds around in terms of the biblical portrait of God's fatherhood, because we've, we've even 
diminished the idea of fatherhood itself as a category of thought, as a relational category within our own culture to an almost sentimental title. It's been robbed of much of the authority and the sense of reverence that it had has and has in other parts, but has in reference to God himself, but also to the relationship of the father within the home. Within the Jewish culture, the fatherhood, fatherhood was infused with the idea of authority, protection, provision, and love. The father was to be respected in every way. If the child did not honor his father and mother in the Old Testament, and if he even went too far, they were to be stoned and they were to be killed. In other words, that, that idea of being father was highly set apart and honored. The father was to be honored. In our culture, and again, this is just a footnote, a large measure due to feminism, the emasculation of men, and the diminution of the home and the family, this sense of fatherhood has been lost. A first century reader would have heard father, just that title alone, and would have understood respect, reverence, authority, and honor. But as one has said, The role of father is so trivialized in our own society that the thought of reverence toward a father has become a novelty. Become a novelty. But here, God is father. And if we address God as father, it is attended with all of those realities of authority and honor and reverence and of discipline. Now, God being a father is, of course, nothing new, but it is new in light of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, God was the father of the nation, you're well aware, and they, they called God my father. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah and Isaiah 63 and others, it says, if you call God my father, my father, he even commands them in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19, that you will are to call God father, my father. But when he says that, he's speaking to them primarily as a nation. My father, in the sense that I am a Jew. My father, in as much as Israel is the firstborn son of God. In that sense, then, he is the father of the nation. And so, there is this reality of God being the father of the nation. And he's even the father of the Messiah in Psalm 89, 26, in this sort of... Uh, somewhat subtle antici- or this anticipation of the Davidic king whom is to refer, who will refer to God as my father, my father. Now, that wasn't the full-blown sense there. He's there uh, being, referring to that in terms of his role as the Davidic king, but it, it takes on a new sense in light of this coming one. He says in Psalm 89, 26, He will cry to me and say, You are my father, my God. The rock of my salvation. But in the New Testament and at the appearing of Christ, this idea of the fatherhood of God takes on a a totally different nature. The understanding of God and Father is given a much fuller and profound sense. Because this idea of Father is no longer limited to the idea of God as God of the nation and Redeemer of the nation of Israel. But it is instead attached to to the person of Christ. In other words, God is not merely the father of the nation. He is, in a very unique sense, the father of Christ, the father of the eternal son. 
And so Jesus had this unique relationship that was noticed by others as he referred to God as his father. He referred to God as his father. He referred to himself as being equal to God, the God of Israel. And so he was a son in a very unique sense. He was a son who deserved the full honor as God, even as the God of Israel. He was a son who executed his divine will in a consistency and unity with the Father that could not be said of any man, any created being. And yet, in another sense, by virtue of the incarnation, he was a son and the Father was to him in this unique relationship what he would be to all of those who are in his son and to know him. So let me just make that point generally. So when he says father here, he's referring then to this new covenant sense of God being our father in Christ. So in John chapter 20, we've looked at this. He says this, uh, speaking to Mary Magdalene, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. So far more than any Old Testament Jew could have understood because of the unfolding history of redemption and the progress of revelation, God was not merely a father here, he's saying, in terms of all of the Christian church, in terms of a a group of people, he is that, but he is particularly father in a unique relationship with each of those who are in his son. He is a father to them in the way that is... Analogous analogous to the reality of his intimate relationship with the Son as Father. And so of believers, he says here, he's speaking to believers, if you address as Father this intimate language of the new covenant, if you address as Father him in whom the Spirit of the Son causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, in Galatians 4, 6 and others. He is an intimate father. He is an intimate father to us. This is the doctrine of adoption. And this is the language of prayer. This is the language of prayer that comes deep within the child of God that calls God as father. He says, if you address her, more literally, if you call upon God as father, if you call upon him as father, then you are in that knowledge of him as father. And this is where we get tripped up, also to fear him, to fear him, to fear him. So it's not inconsistent to call God Father and to fear him. And why does he say we should fear him? How does that work together? Well, we've mentioned it a couple times. He says you fear him, and one, because he is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. He is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. So fear is attended with a proper grasp of our accountability to God. A proper grasp of our accountability to God. We fear God because we're accountable to Him. He is our Father, yes. We approach Him in the intimacy of prayer, yes. He is our Father in Christ in whom we have redemption, yes. But He is also the one who holds us accountable for our sin. He holds us accountable for our sin. He is the judge He is the judge, not only of the world, but also of his children. Now, again, we must be careful here because we can err on one side or the other. 
God is a judge, we understand from the very beginning of Scripture, because he's the judge of, as the creator of all men, he is the only one who has the right to judge all men, and he does. He judged in the garden. He said to Adam, you eat of the tree, you're going to die. They ate of the tree, he told them the curse. The world went into an unfettered kind of indulgence of sin. He destroyed it with a flood. They gathered at the Tower of Babel. He judged them by separating them. The judgment of God is throughout Scripture. He is the one who judges sin. He is the only lawgiver and he is the only judge. He is the judge of all the earth, the psalmist said, for it is you who possess all of the nations. So he is, he is a judge and to fear him begins with that starting point that he's not merely the one who only forgives It's not this sort of universalist view of God that says, well, he's the father of all, and so he's just going to kind of naturally love all equally and forgive them all. No, he is the father. And who is this father? He is the one with full authority to judge, with full authority to judge. And and he does, and he does so righteously. He's not only a judge, he's certainly not like any human judge, which is prone to error. He is a judge who is always perfect in his execution of righteousness and justice. He is a judge who judges based on perfect knowledge. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, if you remember in Genesis 6-5. He knows everything done in secret. He knows every whisper in the darkness. He knows every errant thought. He knows every deed that we have done under the cover of darkness and hiding. He knows it and he judges accordingly. He judges accordingly. 1 Samuel 16, 7, speaking of David, when God was choosing David out of all the other sons, he says he doesn't look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. So he's a perfect judge. This one whom we call Father. He is a perfect judge who sees everything. Nothing is hidden hidden from his sight. And he is a perfect judge who judges with impartiality. Verse 17, he judges impartially. He impartially judges. That means then, essentially, that he is no respecter of persons. He's not impressed by the things that we're so often impressed with. He judges according only to his righteous standard. And within his judgment, there is no injustice, there is no wrong motive, there is no evil intention, but it is in perfect accordance with his righteousness and with his truth. And so when we call him Father, we are calling him Father, who is the judge, as Abraham would say, of all of the earth. He is the judge of all of the earth in Genesis 18, 25. He does only what is right. But here's something to notice, and here's what's curious. He says this, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Why is that curious? Well, it's curious because all judgment has been given to the son. All judgment has been given to the son. Why does he say, if you address as father the one who impartially judges? In John 5.22, Jesus said, Not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. He's given all judgment to the Son. And in fact, it is the Son who will return in power and glory to judge the earth and to establish his kingdom. It is the Son before all will stand before and before whom men hide their face. It is of the Son that he says in verse 31 of Acts 17... 
that God is now is declaring to all men that all people should everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So why does he speak of the Father as judge when Jesus is said to be the one who executes all judgment of God? Well, we just read it, didn't we? Did you hear it? In verse 31, he, meaning the Father, has fixed a day in which he, the Father, will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Through a man whom he has appointed. So while Christ is the one who will execute judgment, the judgment is ultimately the judgment of the Father who executes his divine will through the Son in accordance with the Son's role as Messiah in this case. Jesus said in John 5.30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. In other words... My judgment is utterly consistent with the divine will of my Father. Divine will of my Father. So just to notice that, this is a display then of the triune glory of God, which is throughout everything that Peter has been revealing to us, even at the very beginning. The Father and the Son and the Spirit working in perfect harmony with one another, both in salvation and here in judgment. And yet within the divine relations... The Father is the one who stands as the authority. It was by the Father's will all things were created. It was by the Son's word that all things came into being that has come into being. It was by the Spirit's power that the word of Christ was brought forth. So here it is the Father who impartially judges, though that judgment will come through the Son. It will come through the Son, but it is the Father's will that all men are accountable to. That all men are accountable to. Now, here's then another conflict. So, if he's the judge, and we should fear him as judge, though we address him as father, though we are in the new covenant, though we are in union with Christ, who is our righteousness, if all of those things are the case, then in what way does he judge? How does he judge? And in what way should we fear him? Well, let me note this, that there is a, a different sense of this judgment for unbelievers and believers. Let me clarify that. God's judgment of unbelievers is punitive. In other words, it is merely for the purpose of punishment. It is of punishment. God will judge those outside of Christ eternally, and there is no sense of that judgment being restorative. There is no sense of that judgment being towards a greater end in which they will ultimately be saved. It is merely for the fact of judgment and holding them accountable for their sin. And it is all of that. It's punitive. It's punitive. That's the kind of judgment that Second Thessalonians 1, 9-10 talks about when Christ returns. For believers, however, there is a judgment, but the judgment of God is purifying. It's a judgment that is purifying. For unbelievers, it's punitive. For believers, it is purifying. It is to make them more holy. But they're not spared from it. Let me just 
Note here in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. For it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The judgment that comes upon the world will be for their eternal destruction Believers will also know the judgment of God, but it will be ultimately end in their salvation. But he says, nonetheless, that he is the one to be feared because he is the one who judges. And I would note here that the judgment of God, though though purifying for believers, is severe. It is severe. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, it is the judgment of God that took the life of some of those in the church of Corinth. It is the judgment of God that killed Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. After which, Luke says that a great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So a believer, ultimately the judgment for sin was born at the cross. There's no fear of condemnation. As a matter of fact, this is a footnote there. Believers will in fact participate with Christ in his judgment of the world. 1 Corinthians 6.2 We will judge the world with him. But yet, there is within the believer an understanding still that there is an accountability for sin. Why? Why? How can this then believer fear God? Again, how can a believer fear God? And how can there be a a similarity or at least an expectation of God as judge if in fact our condemnation has been born on the cross? And doesn't 1 John 4.18 say that perfect love cast out fear? Is God contradicting himself? No. No. Why then should we fear? What is Peter getting at? For two reasons, and I'm going to mention these, and then we're going to come to the table. And this is really just kind of introductory. Because there is remaining sin in the believer, God executes judgments and brings suffering that is designed to purify us and share in his holiness. And secondly, because fear includes the idea of not offending the one whom we love and being ashamed before him at the fruit of our lives. It also, there's a certain holy fear of those who profess Christ by knowing that the profession not attended with the reality of works will also bring a certain expectation of judgment. So let me just mention these. Let me just mention these. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul informs us that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's listen to this. Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why do we want to be pleasing to him as believers? Here. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also to your conscience. Pleasing God... And the desire to fear him and to live out of the fear for him is directly attached that you and I are one day going to leave this world and stand before Christ. And our life will be examined for its faithfulness to him. 
In 1 Corinthians 4, we will be examined according to the motives of our works. We will be examined according to our works themselves. And that should produce within us a fear, a certain fear of being ashamed before him, a fear of offending the one with whom we have to do. And there is a fear, too, here that is a certain kind of warning when he says, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges. And the warning is this. If he judges us according to each one's work, then we must examine our work that it is, in fact, a fruit of the spirit and of salvation. Do not fear God. Do not fear those who destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It is a warning to say, do not fear the consequences of following Christ, but fear the consequences of not following him. And know that your judgment will be based not on merely on a profession of faith, but on the reality of a transformed life. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. To a resurrection of judgment. In other words, the reality of our salvation is demonstrated in works and we will be judged on those works. At the heart then of what Peter is saying here, we'll wrap it up there, is that if we confess God as Father... If we confess our faith in Christ and our trust in him, then we should be marked by fear. A fear that understands that we will ultimately stand before Christ and give an account for our lives. A fear that understands God's holy nature as opposed to sin, whether it be in his children or in the world. We shall conduct ourselves in fear and deal with sin during our time of stay here on earth, knowing that Christ has redeemed us with his precious blood. And we shall live our lives in fear, worshiping him who is worthy of glory, honor, and praise. Pray with me as we get ready now to worship him in the table and take the elements. Father, we thank you for the fact that though we should fear and only fear, as a matter of fact of those who are outside of your grace, you said Satan uses the fear of death to control them and to manipulate them. And yet we don't know that kind of fear. The fear of death, the fear of eternal judgment, we who know you, but we do know the fear that says our sin came at a great cost. That you are one not to be trifled with, but holy and transcendent. That we will one day stand and present our lives to you to be evaluated for what we have done, whether good or bad, the motives with which we did these things. Help us to live circumspectly and under the fear of you and in anticipation of your return, even as we remember in these elements and the table. And if anyone here does not have that fear of you and is outside of that transforming grace, then I pray, O oh Lord, that today would be the day that you awaken them to see your glory in Christ, that they would fear and tremble before your word, and that they would know your saving grace. To that end, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.